Well, good evening. I'm glad you're here. Open up in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 3. It's going to be in verses 1 through 6 of Hebrews 3. And uh, while you're getting there, I just want to remind you again about the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist event, October 11th and 12th. That's really just one week away, Monday and Tuesday night, the 11th and 12th, right across the street from 6.30 to 8.30. Dr. Frank Turek is uh, an expert in apologetics, uh, the defense of the Christian faith. So he'll be answering some questions about the existence of God, but also the possibility of miracles, the reliability of the New Testament. It's a great opportunity. If you have questions in that regard, or if you're just interested in sharpening your skills in understanding and defending the Christian faith, but also if you have friends that have questions about Christianity, this would really be a great place for them to come. Um, I got to hear Dr. Turek last spring here on campus, and he does a great job of truthfully, but also graciously presenting the truths of the scripture and defending the gospel as well. So I'd encourage you guys to come out to that. It's absolutely free and there's info on your chair, like they said earlier, that you can uh, look at. All right, Hebrews chapter three, I'm gonna start in verse one. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the opportunity that we just had to sing to you. Father, that we sing hallelujah, praise the Lord, praise the risen Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Savior, the only one in whom there is life, the only one in whom there is an understanding of who you are, Father. Father, as we look at the book of Hebrews, we are continually and repeatedly reminded of the greatness and the uniqueness of our Savior. So, Father, please give us eyes and hearts to see and understand this evening. And, Father, motivate us through your Spirit to obey. We want to do your will. And so we pray that you would help us. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few years ago, Shannon and I ran across a movie that was kind of a documentary of sorts, a little unusual, but uh, it was a documentary called My Date with Drew. Now, some of you may have seen it, some of you may have not, but uh, here's a poster for the movie. The idea behind the movie was there's an unemployed filmmaker. This guy's name was Brian Herslinger, and uh, he was down and out. He was running out of money, and he came up with an idea for a documentary, and the idea was this. He was going to do everything that he could to try to somehow get a date with Drew Barrymore, uh, the film star. And uh, so uh, he called people that she knew and he did everything that he could. He talks at the beginning of the film about how ever since he was a little child, he had idolized Drew Barrymore. 
She had been the person that he looked up to and wanted to know and just had a crush on ever since she was an ET when she was like four or however old that was. And so uh, uh, this guy spent this whole movie, 30 days, he actually uh, bought a camera at Circuit City and then he returned it later because he couldn't afford to keep it. And he spent 30 days chasing her down, trying to get a date with her. And uh, I won't give away the ending if you haven't seen it, but the title probably tells you how it ended. And uh, so this guy spent all this time trying to get a date with the person that he wanted to spend time with the most. Now, uh, as I watched the movie, I thought, you know, there were moments of it that were kind of cute and a little bit sweet, but there were also moments of it that struck me as a little bit creepy and uh, a little bit bizarre because although uh, you think, yeah, everybody maybe has had a celebrity crush from time to time, most of us don't go that far. Right? And so there was something just a little bit stalkerish about the film as I watched it, just a little bit strange, and, and it raised all these questions in my mind after I watched it. Um, I'm one of these people, I can't just watch a movie, I have to process it a lot after I watch it. And so it raises all of these questions, and it made me think about the nature of the society in which we live. Why is it that we live in a day and an age when a movie like this can become popular? And where people will check it out and take it home and want to watch it. And and as I thought about it, I thought really what it is is because we live in a celebrity-obsessed culture. We live in a culture and in a day and age in which people really idolize those who are well-known and those who are popular. And if you think about your life, again, most of us at some point have probably had some kind of... uh, a liking for some kind of celebrity, maybe not a crush like this, but maybe there's a band you particularly like and you think, I'd love to get to know those guys. Maybe it's an athlete or maybe it's a musician or or maybe it's a politician for that matter. And you say, I'd love to know that person. I'd love to be like that person. I think it can even happen in Christian culture. Uh, I grew up uh, in a Christian family and grew up going to church. And so when I was a kid, we had our Christian celebrities, certainly. And I'm going to date myself by telling you this. But uh, the guy that was really popular when I was growing up uh, was Michael W. Smith, the uh, Christian musician who's like, I don't know, 55 now or something like that. But uh, he was super popular and we all liked his music and we, we wanted to be like him and we would watch his videos in youth group. And I had this more than life-size poster of the guy in my room, right? People would come and go, oh my gosh, what in the world is that thing? You know, and so uh, I really looked up to this guy and a lot of people did. I actually had a friend of mine that every time Michael W. Smith came to town, he would try to get backstage somehow. And uh, I remember distinctly at one point, he actually slipped past security in an arena by crawling under the stage, right? And it got to the point where Michael W. Smith actually kind of knew this guy. It's like, hey, how you doing, buddy? You know, I'm going to take a few steps back, right? Because this guy kind of followed him around. And so I think it even happens in our Christian culture as well. Maybe not with musicians for you, but I think it also happens with pastors and speakers and writers, I've noticed sometimes that as I listen to certain pastors, they may quote certain theologians or other pastors sometimes more than they do the Bible. Right? And, and as I've talked with some students and some young adults, you may spend more time listening to your favorite pastor and wanting to parrot his ideas and do things his way, perhaps more than you do the Bible at times. So we definitely live in a culture, even as Christians, where we want to exalt people. It may be that the person you struggle with wanting to exalt more than somebody else is just yourself. You want to be the one that everybody knows. You want to be the one that has the 5,000 Facebook friends. The one that has your name up in lights and everybody wants to be like. 
so we live in a, in a culture, and I think this is really probably something common to the human race, but particularly noticeable in our culture. We live in a time in which we are tempted to exalt other people to a status almost of God and to worship them and idolize them. As we've looked at the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews has walked through with us the concept that he's laying throughout this whole book, which is there is nothing better than Jesus Christ. And as we looked at chapters one and two, he walked through the idea that Jesus is better even than the angels, God's messengers. And last week, we looked at these concepts of Jesus being our high priest and giving help to those in need. We looked at uh, the idea of Jesus being greater than any system by which we might know God. And this week, the author of Hebrews is going to take us and he's going to say, not only is Jesus better than the angels, better than any system, but he's better than any person that you might know. He's better than any leader that you might look to. He's better than any celebrity you might want to follow. Now, he is writing to first century Jewish men and women. And their culture was very different from ours. They didn't have television and podcasts and all of these things, easily printed books that they could hand out. But what they did have in the first century was the law. And so in the first century, the person that they, in a sense, idolized or looked up to the most was Moses. They didn't have a celebrity or a theologian or whoever it may be, a rock star, but they had Moses. And so in the midst of persecution and a temptation to go back to Judaism, their temptation is to say, well, Jesus came later and Jesus is great, but Moses is even better because Moses gave us the law. Moses laid the foundation for everything that we are. And everything we believe. And so the author of Hebrews is going to walk back again and say, yeah, Moses is great. Moses is a faithful servant, but Jesus is even higher. So my hope is by the time we get to the end of this passage, we'll begin to evaluate a little bit. Who or what do I exalt above Jesus? And how can I begin to respond to the call that Jesus is placing on my life? And as we see in this passage, the call that Jesus is placing on my life to be bold and confident and maintain my confession of Jesus Christ as the only Savior, Jesus Christ, as the only God. Jesus Christ is the only one worthy of my worship and trust. And then begin to orient my life around that. So Hebrews chapter 3, author starts here by saying, Jesus is faithful. Jesus is faithful, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. So he starts with this command. He says, consider Jesus. And the idea is think carefully about Jesus. Think carefully about who he is. Spend some time processing who Jesus is. Because Jesus was faithful to the task that God gave. And here in the first couple of verses, he lays out, because Jesus was faithful to that task, there are benefits that accrue to our account. There are things that we gain because Jesus was faithful. Jesus was true is the idea. Jesus did what he was supposed to do. And if you think about the history of our country, we often talk about how the men and women who fought in the wars of the past, because of those men and women, we have benefits today. We have freedom. We have the ability to sit here today and we're not slaves to another nation because men and women fought and died. A few years ago, I happened to be watching uh, a drama slash kind of documentary called Band of Brothers that many of you guys have seen. It's about World War II and it's about one particular paratrooper unit in World War II. And early on in this series, there's a scene where it shows, it depicts the invasion of Normandy as these uh, men were flying 
from England to France. And when they crossed the channel and they got over to Normandy, they began to jump out of the airplanes with their parachutes in the midst of anti-aircraft fire and machine gun fire and all kinds of hostility. And many of them were shot down before they hit the ground. And I was watching it with my wife and we looked over at each other and we just said, it's unbelievable what those men did. The sacrifices that they made and the willingness that they had to go and fight for what they believed in so that we could accrue all of these benefits of freedom and of life. And so because they were faithful, we accrue these benefits. But, you know, when I've talked to people who fought in World War II, my grandfather fought in World War II. There was another man that I knew well years ago who fought in the war. And you talk to them and you talk about the fighting they did and the sacrifices they made. Often what they say is, I just did my job. I just did what they asked me to do. And the author of Hebrews says, Jesus did his job. He was faithful to what God asked him to do. And as a result, there are benefits that accrue to our account. And he's going to talk about that here. What are these benefits? Verse one, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. In other words, because Jesus was faithful, we are called holy. Holy means set apart for the purposes of God. And we are partakers of what he calls a heavenly calling. All right, this word partakers comes up over and over and over again in Hebrew. So it's a critical word for us to understand. All right, it's a Greek word, metakoi. It means those who share. The idea is those who fully participate in a task or an endeavor or a blessing. It's used in chapter two, verse 14. It says, Jesus partook of flesh and blood. He shared flesh and blood with us. He fully participated in being a human being. It's used in 1 Corinthians 9 of the sharing of a meal. If I sit down with you for dinner tonight and we order a meal and we cut it in half and the two of us share the meal together, we are partaking together. We're sharers. And the idea is because Jesus did what he did, now we have the opportunity to fully participate, to share in the task of Jesus Christ, in the mission of Jesus Christ, to draw all men to himself and to glorify God. We have the opportunity to be Jesus' representatives. And this is critical as you walk throughout Hebrews. Hebrews is not just talking about how we can become a Christian and then go to heaven when we die. All right, the scripture is very clear that the way that we become a Christian is by believing in Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. And that message is in Hebrews. But Hebrews is concerned particularly for people who already have trusted Jesus Christ to say, now what I want you to chase is to be a full participant of the mission that God has given you in Jesus Christ. This is what this word partaker means as you walk throughout. Because of what Jesus has done, he says, now the path is open for us to partake, to share in this heavenly calling from God. Well, what did Jesus do? Jesus is who? The apostle and high priest of our confession. In other words, he is the one who brings God's message that there can be righteousness, and he's also the high priest. Remember, we talked a couple weeks ago, the high priest was the the one in the nation of Israel who went once a year into the Holy of Holies and he made a sacrifice on behalf of the people. And he would pour the blood of the sacrifice on, on the mercy seat, the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And for the next year, that would atone for the sins of mankind, of the nation, between them and God. And so the high priest was the primary mediator who made sacrifice for their sins. And what the author of Hebrews says is Jesus brought a message. He was the messenger, but he was also the means for us to have eternal life. He did both of those things. He was the messenger and he was the means. The last probably couple of months, my six-year-old daughter has gotten really into a book called Fancy Nancy. Uh, Some of you may have seen this book around. 
guys in particular, I don't expect you've got this on your shelf, uh, but uh, I'm going to tell you guys a little bit about it tonight. I actually had the book this morning and forgot to bring it back tonight, but Fancy Nancy, the idea is uh, she's a little girl who loves to dress fancy. Everything she wears and does is fancy. So she'll wear like boas and tutus and all kinds of things around her house. And she is very fancy. But she laments at the beginning of the book that nobody else in her family is at all fancy. They don't do anything fancy. They don't say fancy words. And so she puts a sign on her refrigerator. She brings them a message. The sign is this. If you want to be fancy, take lessons from Nancy. It's easy, fun, free. And so uh, her family sees the sign and they go to her room and they, they get lessons from her on how to be fancy. But the problem is this, they have no fancy clothes to wear. And so what does Nancy do? Well, she goes to her own closet and she provides them with fancy clothes. She lets them wear some of her fancy outfits and they all go out to dinner together, all dressed fancy. What's my point? Uh, Nancy is both the messenger of fanciness and the means of fanciness, right? She brings the message and she provides the means. She says, you need to be fancy. And then she says, Here's how you do it, and I'll give these clothes to you. What does Jesus do? He comes to us, and he's the messenger to say, there's a big gap between you and God in terms of your righteousness. You need God's righteousness. Nothing you can do through the law is enough. And then what does he do? He becomes the high priest, and he makes sacrifice on our behalf. And he becomes the means of our righteousness. And as a result, the way is paid for us to fully participate in everything God wants us to participate in, in being his representatives. And then in verse two, the author presents for the first time in this passage, the idea of Moses. He says, Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in his house. And he's gonna set up a comparison now between Jesus and Moses. Again, remember Moses was the highest of all the prophets. If you look at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, it says before Moses and after Moses, no prophet came around in Israel that was as great. God spoke to Moses face to face. Moses was unique among all the prophets and all the servants of God in the Old Testament. And so Moses held this high, high position. One commentator put it this way. Moses holds a particularly high place in the thought of Philo. Philo was a first century Jewish writer. The thought of Philo, Philo repeatedly calls him high priest. And more than once, theos, theos means God. One form of the messianic hope was the expectation of a second Moses. The rabbinic tradition provides ample evidence for the belief that Moses was held to be higher than the angels. In other words, there were men and women in the nation of Israel who believed that the Messiah himself was going to be the return of Moses. And that Moses was so esteemed, he was like a god. So the author of Hebrews begins to compare Jesus to Moses. And here's what he's going to say is Moses is good, but Jesus is absolutely incomparable. Nobody's like Jesus. Look at verses three and four. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. In other words, Jesus is worthy of more glory, more praise than Moses, just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. In other words, Jesus is worthy of more honor than Moses because Jesus made Moses. Jesus made the world. Moses is in God's house. Moses was faithful in God's house as a part of God's people. But Jesus is the one who is God in the flesh, who made the world, who gave Moses the law. And so if you want to compare prophets, you say, who is it? Moses or Abraham or David or who's the best? Author of Hebrews says there's no contest that it's Jesus. About a week ago, my wife and I had some friends over to our house 
and uh, there were enchiladas and all kinds of good Mexican food. And at the end of the meal, she made a dessert that's called sopapilla cheesecake. And uh, it was excellent. It's like cheesecake with kind of bread, and it tastes like a sopapilla cheesecake, as you would imagine that would taste. And uh, it was just delectable. It was a delightful dessert, and uh, everybody enjoyed it who was there, including me. And so people were just raving about this. But you know, when they ate it, what they didn't do was go over to the pan of cheesecake and say, way to go, cheesecake. Good job. Can I buy you a drink? Can I take, you know, they didn't do that, right? What did they do? They went to my wife and they said, Shannon, this is excellent. Good job. You're a wonderful chef. They praise the maker of the dessert, not the dessert itself. Author of Hebrews says we give the highest honor to the maker of the house, not to the house. Now, you you gentlemen are going to have to forgive me for a minute. I I realized I talked about Fancy Nancy. Now I'm talking about baking. I'll go to the gym or something this week and make up for it. But uh, uh, to continue my analogy here, pretend that we're in a room and there are 15 of you and you've made a sopapilla cheesecake. And you begin to argue about who, who made the best one. This person says, mine is the best because of this. Mine's the best because of this. And then uh, Betty Crocker walks in the room. And she says, hey, you're all using my recipe. I, may, now, I don't even know if she's a real person or not, but I'm going to use her, okay? I, I, I made the recipe. I gave it to you. You can argue all day about who's the best, but it's clear that I'm the best. Moses says this, you can argue all day about which person is the best. Who has the best theology? Who's the coolest band? Who's the best celebrity that I want to worship? But ultimately, Jesus walks in the room and he says, look, I made everybody. I'm the builder of the house. And so Moses, as great as he is, and he's not denigrating Moses at all, Moses has to take a back seat to Jesus. Because Jesus is the highest, the highest being in, in the universe. Because he's God in the flesh. And verses 5 to the beginning of 6 goes on and says, Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house. In other words, Moses did a great job as a servant of God, but Jesus is the son. And the son is the Lord and the master of the house. He's not just the maker, he's also the Lord and the master of the house. I had a friend when I was growing up whose dad owned this antique store. And it was a unique kind of antique store. They actually sold old video games and pinball machines and slot machines and things along those lines. So it was one of the most enjoyable places as an eight-year-old kid to go and play. And we would walk in the store and uh, you'd look around and there were employees at the store, right? And the employee's job was to maintain the machines, to help sell the machines, to tell people about the machines. But you know what the employees didn't do? They didn't play on the machines, They didn't walk around and just enjoy them and have fun because they couldn't. That wasn't their job. They were employees. But when I walked in with Tommy, the owner's son, we had a ball. He was the prince of the place because it was his dad's store. So we played on the machines. We enjoyed it. We had a great time. Only when I was with him could I have that privilege. And that's what the author of Hebrews here says. Jesus as the son of God is the Lord and master of the house. And as such, he's greater than Moses. And he reigns over the universe. And so there's no comparison. He's not merely a servant, but he's God's son. He's incomparable. And then thirdly, the end of verse six, we see that he's calling us. It says, Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. That's what he's saying. 
Jesus Christ is calling you and me to be his priestly representatives to the world. Remember, in the context of Hebrews, he's talking about uh, Jesus as our high priest, as the messenger, but also as the priest. And if you think back in the nation of Israel, there was a high priest, but there was also a household of priests. And the priests were also like mini mediators between the people and God. They made smaller sacrifices on behalf of the people. And they represented the people before God and God before the people. And the idea is, uh, if we hold fast our boast and confidence till the end, we have the opportunity to fully participate as representatives of God in Jesus Christ, that we get to be a part of his priestly house. He's not saying here that in order to earn your salvation, somehow you have to keep plugging away and doing the right things and thinking the right things all the way to the end of your life. He's not saying you're somehow going to lose your salvation if you don't do certain things. The scripture is very clear that eternal life is a free gift that comes through believing in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection alone. But what the author of Hebrews is saying is that for those who have trusted in in Jesus Christ for eternal life, now you have the opportunity to be a priestly representative in a way that you couldn't before. And so in order to do that, you need to continue to hold fast the confidence and the boast of Jesus Christ. And the idea seems to be that you continue to move out and you share the gospel and you stand firm in the confession of faith, even in a world that says, turn to the right or to the left, go back to Judaism, go over here to celebrity worship, go over here to self-worship. And you say, no, I pursue Jesus Christ and I hold fast my boast. He says, then you can be a part of this priestly house where you're a representative of of God before man and man before God. If you were to look at Exodus 32, what you'd see is uh, in Exodus 32, a very low point in the history of the nation of Israel. In that uh, the nation of Israel in Exodus 32, Moses was up on a mountain and they were by themselves with Aaron. And they said, well, this Moses, we don't know what's happened to him. After a few days, they go, he's gone. Aaron, build us a God. So Aaron says, sure, give me all your gold. They take their earrings, their necklaces, everything, and he tosses it into a furnace, and then he fashions a golden calf, right? And they begin to worship the golden calf. Moses comes down from the mountain and sees what's going on and recognizes the people have gone into idolatry. And Moses says in verses 26 to 29, he says this, everybody who is for the Lord, everybody who is for Yahweh, not for this false God, everybody who's for God, uh, gather around to me. And you know who gathered around to Moses? Says the sons of Levi gathered around Moses. Moses says, all right, gird on your sword and go do business with the Lord's enemies. In other words, kill those who have gone into idolatry, execute God's judgment. Flash forward to the book of Numbers chapter three. Who gets the privilege of being the priestly line? It's the Levites, the sons of Levi. It's not that all the rest of the nation of Israel and all of their line no longer is going to heaven. That's not it at all. It's that the Levites, because they were faithful, because they didn't go off into idolatry, they have a special unique privilege. They get to serve God in the tabernacle. The author of Hebrews says, those who hold fast their boast and confidence, who stand firm, who don't turn to idolatry, have the opportunity in a unique way to be priestly representatives of God through Jesus Christ. And that's what we're called to. Recognize that no one is greater than Jesus, not even me, not even you, not even the best celebrity rock star theologian pastor we can think of, but only Jesus Christ. And then I hold fast to that and then I move out into the world and I share as Jesus 
representative to the world. For just a minute as we wrap up, I, I want you to process this question. I'm going to give you a moment to do that. Who or what are you tempted to exalt above Jesus? Right, maybe it is somebody famous. Uh, maybe it's somebody you know. Maybe it is a romantic interest. You lie awake at nights wondering, how can I please this person? How can I make this person happy? How can this person be the center of my life? Uh, maybe it's a friend you respect. Maybe it's even your parents, professor, maybe not a professor, but somebody right, that's important in your life. Maybe it is yourself. We do live in a very narcissistic age. Who or what are you tempted to exalt above Jesus? We're going to take a moment as we close. I just want to give us a couple of minutes of quiet silence here in the room to come before God and ask him to remove the idol from your heart so that you can worship him alone and be his priestly representative to the world. So the world will know the glory of God through Jesus Christ. Let's close our eyes for just a minute and take just a moment. Think through who or what is it that you're tempted to exalt above Jesus. And then ask God to remove that idol and let you place Jesus on the throne where he belongs. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that you are so much higher than we are that we can't even fathom. And that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man who shared our flesh and blood and our weaknesses physically. And he was tempted, but was tempted without sin. And he is perfectly capable of representing us before you And Father, we acknowledge that we want to worship him alone. Not be led astray into the worship of other men or women or ourselves. Lord, we would exalt you above all. Father, thank you for Jesus. We pray, allow us to be the faithful kingdom representatives you have called us to be. For the sake of your name and your glory and remove the idols from our hearts and minds so we might fully worship you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. See you all next week.